In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Will Joe Biden's big win boost Georgia Democrats? Overall, it's going to put money back into the pockets of Georgians, back into the pockets of Americans, and that's the kind of progress we need to continue to make. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Coming up later, we'll talk about how the FBI's Mar-a-Lago search could rain on the Democrats' parade. But first, Patricia, welcome back. We hope you had a great vacation. We missed you a lot. Thank you. I had an awesome vacation. I went with my family to the beach and we did like stuff we'd never done before that I'd never done before. We went paddleboarding and on a catamaran and I made a key lime pie. Like it was a lot of firsts. It was very exciting. I didn't know people actually like made key lime pies. I just thought they just showed up at the grocery store. I've never done it. I also didn't know you could do that. And I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do not. I'm glad to be back. I do not have the balance for paddleboard, but we... Uh, our big news this week was we celebrated our sixth grader going to middle school and she was so excited and we had a, she went to a tennis tournament. My wife won her Alta tennis championship city finals over the weekend. And we, I took my other daughter to the whitewater theme park. First time I was there in like 15 years. It's the exact same (laughs) except for a few new rides. So we had a, we had a blast. I'm still alive. I'm a little sunburned, but I'm still alive. (laughs) And you missed a lot of Georgia news, but luckily for you, there's a lot more that has already supplanted whatever you missed last week, starting with the Sunday vote on a big cornerstone of President Joe Biden's agenda. And again, something we've said this so many times, but one of those provisions, one of those pieces of legislation that would not have passed had John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock not flip the two U.S. Senate seats in last year's runoff. They cast the two deciding votes on this, pushing Democrats to 50 to let Kamala Harris, the vice president, cast the tie-breaking vote. And Patricia, you know, it's hard to understate how important this was for Democrats really needing a shot in the arm. Joe Biden's low approval ratings, high inflation, energy prices, all that has been part of the GOP narrative and part of just the everyday challenges that Georgians are, are facing. But Democrats capping off with this legislation's success in the Senate, they've had a string of victories. Yeah, they have had a string of victories. And that comes after what felt like a very long walk in the desert for Democrats. And the storylines were, again, dims in disarray. You know, inflation was 
and continues to um, go up and up. Um, all of the news felt bad for Democrats. And really over the last six weeks, even with just 50 votes in the Senate, Democrats have been able to pass that big chips bill for the microchip bill. There was the burn pit bill, uh, the PAC Act, and that's something that John Ossoff was working on. They had a big gun control measure that really went almost under the radar just because of other news that was happening at the time. And then this really, really big package. Now this package is about, is literally about a tenth of the size of its original Build Back Better bill. But Democrats, I think, have really smartly slimmed it down, passed what they could, rebranded it as the Inflation Reduction Act, because that's obviously on voters' minds, um, and they got the votes for it. And so not only did they get this legislation done in the Senate, it looks pretty good to get through the House on Friday. Also, I think it just sets the storyline, even just for Democrats themselves, we can do this. We can pass bills. We can govern. You know, whether voters like those results, whether those results come fast enough for November, that's all remains to be seen. But at least they can tell themselves, yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can pass a bill. <laughs> and look, we just did a bunch of them. Yeah. And Patricia, you know, it, it, Democrats passed this using a different tactic. First, they scaled back from Build Back Better a number of provisions that were seen by some. Senate Democrats as too progressive. And they also, in passing the biggest investment from Congress in U.S. history to combat climate change, and they did it with a different approach rather than sticks and penalties and disincentives for companies to invest in dirty energy, so to speak. They used carrots instead, a lot of perks, a lot of tax breaks, a lot of incentives to create and produce and manufacture more clean energy, more electric vehicles and the like. And that's just a part of this bill. The other major part is a package of healthcare subsidies that is aimed at not only slowing rising inflation, but also making prescription drugs cost a little less, giving government negotiators more power to negotiate with drug companies over what medication is purchased. And also, just in general, a package of incentives that Democrats hope will help curb the rising price of prescription drugs. Yes, I was a Capitol Hill staffer in the late 90s. And there was a conversation among Democrats, why can't they get Medicare to negotiate drug prices? I mean, this has been a goal of Democrats for decades. So the fact that they were able to just slip this into the, they didn't slip into this package. It was an important piece of this package, but it wasn't the only piece. And so there is a ton in there that Democrats are so happy about, especially those climate change provisions. There were also some tax increases in there. And that is where Republicans feel like they really have a message that they can hammer the Democrats on. But listen, if you talk to Democrats about these tax increases, a lot of Democrats, especially progressives, will say, you're darn right there's tax increases in there because these tax increases are focused on corporations that make more than a billion dollars of profit a year, and it's targeted to stock buybacks for companies. And so they're pretty narrowly tailored, and they really are targeted at those American companies. It seems like once or twice a year, we read about one of the biggest companies or some of the largest corporations in America that pay no corporate mm -hmm. income tax. This is really focused on those companies. It doesn't come in for individual earners. We'll have to see sort of what those climate change provisions do. Um, will those drive up the cost of energy further? I mean, we all know, we see now, 
now that the cost of energy really is a building block of the cost of a lot of other things. And so I think Democrats are going to have to be really careful how they message this and really how it's implemented to make sure that it doesn't drive up the cost of um, fossil fuels that Americans rely on while they're really trying to speed that transition over to greener energy, which is just so, so crucially important, particularly as climate change becomes more and more real for just everyday Americans. Yeah, let's talk about the Georgia impact of it. We know that Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff, of course, both cast two of the most important votes for this major provision. But Stacey Abrams has also been aggressively tying herself to President Biden. And it's surprising to even some Democrats because Biden's approval ratings at 36% in Georgia, according to the last AJC poll, but also because her strategy does not line up with how Senator Warnock is lining up. He is saying, hey, you know, I'm not really focused on President Biden. I'm focused on whoever can help Georgia the most, even if that means working with Republicans across party lines. He's trying to show himself to be a very proactive kind of doer in the Senate. Whereas Stacey Abrams, she's saying, hey, you know, I was at a campaign event with her in Dalton uh, just a few days ago where she said, yeah, I'm supporting Joe Biden. I'm supporting his reelection campaign. I am tying myself essentially at the hip with Joe Biden. Here's what she said about the inflation measure on CNN just the other day. For people in Georgia who do not have Medicaid expansion because Brian Kemp refuses to do so, this drug bill is going to help a great deal because it's going to allow them to actually be able to afford their medications without choosing between medicine and food. We know that we have to take action on climate. And unfortunately, I live in a state where the governor has been absolutely silent on his intentions. I intend to push for environmental resilience, and this is a bill that's going to help us do that. But overall, it's going to put money back into the pockets of Georgians, back into the pockets of Americans, and that's the kind of progress we need to continue to make. Patricia, are you surprised at all by the differing approaches between Stacey Abrams on Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock when we have the senator kind of saying, you know, I support some of his policies, but he's also demonstrating his independence when it comes to Joe Biden on many others, as contrasted with Stacey Abrams, who is saying very openly and made the national media rounds on the Sunday morning shows, telling each and every host how much she supports Joe Biden. Same thing she's saying on the campaign trail. This is not a difference, but it is a difference between these two Democratic candidates. Yeah, you know, I am surprised and I'm really surprised about Stacey Abrams because she doesn't have to do that. She's running for governor. She's not running for a federal office. And so there's no imperative on her to get out there and support Joe Biden. There's no question of how are you going to vote with Joe Biden once you're in the Senate? You know, that's just not the conversation that she is required to deal with. But I do also think it reflects the reality of Stacey Abrams. She talked about very seriously as being Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. Um, the candidate to run with him as his running mate. And so it would have been extremely disingenuous for her at this point to say, oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've met Joe Biden. I don't know him that well. <laughs> you know. And the reality is that Raphael Warnock really at this point is still his own political brand. He didn't come up with Joe Biden. He did not serve in the Senate with Joe Biden. He has not known Joe Biden in the same way and worked with Biden in the same way that uh, Abrams has. But I think it reflects Warnock's political realities right now. He is doing very well without Joe Biden. Any campaign is going to do as little as possible as as is required. You don't want to be reaching down during a campaign. You want to be kind of reaching up. (laughs) You know, that's just the reality of it. Yeah, Patricia. And something else Senator Warnock really, you know, didn't do as much as he, you didn't see him or hear him campaigning aggressively for Joe Biden on the campaign trail in 2020. Certainly they appeared together at events, but he's not the one getting credited for the flip 
that you know turned Georgia blue for the first time in a presidential race since 1992. That's Stacey Abrams. So Stacey Abrams, it's really impossible for her to sort of show any sort of distance between her and Joe Biden when not only is she credited with orchestrating the flip, but also, as you mentioned, campaigned openly to be his vice president and aggressively to be his running mate. So there's no daylight between them, or if there is, it's really hard to make that sink in. But at the same time, this is something that has not gone unnoticed by Republicans. Governor Kemp wants nothing more, as we've said so many times, than to make this a referendum on Joe Biden's economic leadership, on Joe Biden's presidency, tying Stacey Abrams to what he calls the Biden-Abrams agenda, the Biden-Abrams economy, the Biden-Abrams inflation. And he's also come out forcefully against this Democratic uh, reconciliation bill. Here's what he said on the campaign trail. There is no doubt that we have experienced very frustrating and and anxious last two years. And it's been made worse by crushing inflation and economic problems that are very real. And unfortunately, Washington, D.C. seems hell-bent on making life even, even harder and more expensive. But here in Georgia, conservative leadership has worked tirelessly to put hard work in Georgians first. So, Patricia, he's making the case that while the national economy might be sputtering, the Georgia economy is strong. It's a tough balancing act he's trying to do, saying, hey, Georgia's good, but the nation's in trouble because we only see one economy, right? We only see one reality when we're at the grocery stores, restaurants, or the gas pumps. Um, But he's trying to make the case that there is this divide. Meanwhile, there is this threat that all this democratic progress that's being made, all this momentum, and you went over some of the highlights earlier, Patricia, but I'd also add in the assassination of Al-Qaeda's leader and the expansion of NATO to include Finland and Sweden and create a bigger bulwark against Russian expansion. All these were parts of the democratic successes over the last few weeks, but then we had the surprise news that the FBI, the Justice Department, was expanding its investigation into the last phases of Donald Trump's presidency by searching Mar-a-Lago, his Florida estate. And we also learned that the White House was not necessarily in on it. They did not know of this search. And we instantly heard from Republicans saying, basically, this is the turning point. You know, Republicans already had in many of these races, the political climate's already favoring them. But now there is a sense that, hey, not only is this going to continue the Republican um, optimism, I guess, but this will also galvanize more Trump supporters to hold their nose and vote for some of the candidates that weren't seen as as uh, super Trump fans like Brad Raffensperger, like Brian Kemp, maybe, you know, who see this as part of a witch hunt against the former president. Yeah, you know, I have seen Republicans, um, some Republicans, not all Republicans, some Republicans have really galloped to Donald Trump's defense, but others have not. Brian Kemp has not said a word about the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. Raffensperger has not gotten into that as well. And I do see a danger for Republicans like Herschel Walker if they jump down this rabbit hole. And he has been really focused recently on an economic message and on hitting Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock and blaming both of them for rising gas prices, rising grocery prices. If somebody like Herschel Walker gets off on this tangent about FBI raids and accusing Merrick Garland of running a banana republic, I think that that is going down a a direction that's not helpful. I mean, the reality is that Donald Trump lost Georgia in 2020. 
his candidates lost in 2021, his GOP nominees lost in 2022, many of them. And so Donald Trump is not a winning formula in Georgia right now, but is a subtractor, not an addition factor for most candidates. And so um, I understand why Republicans feel like it's galvanizing their base, but galvanizing their base is just part of the equation for statewide candidates. And so somebody like Walker, somebody like Burt Jones, these Trump line candidates who have to run statewide, I think it actually presents a danger, almost more of a danger for them if they get off of their economic message and go down this rabbit hole with Trump's sort of like nearest and dearest, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Eric Trump and Lauren Boebert. If they're over on that side of the conversation and not over here talking about gas prices, that is not a winning formula. So I think it presents dangers for both sides. I think Democrats, especially the White House, would really have loved for this not to have happened. It really does change the conversation from what they'd rather be talking about as well. But when the conversation is about Donald Trump in Georgia, that tends to accrue to Democrats' favor, at least as far as the last three elections go. Yeah, you know, I was in Macon earlier today for the Georgia Chamber's annual legislative luncheon. About 1,400 or so people were there, so it was a packed crowd. And I could barely walk a step or two without someone saying, what do you think of this? Does this make Donald Trump more likely to run? What impact could this have on the November midterms? All these questions that we still can't really answer. But I can tell you my hunch is I already thought Donald Trump was going to run, and this might make him speed up his announcement because it could help inoculate himself from any more investigations. It'll look like it's being done even more so to Donald Trump's supporters, like it's being done even more so to help derail his presidential run. And certainly it could add another polarizing element. And look, one of the Republicans' concerns going into this midterm cycle is that Donald Trump supporters would stay home, would not be as energized because Donald Trump's name is not in the ballot, even though some of his preferred candidates are. In Georgia, there's just a handful, right? A lot of the candidates Donald Trump actively opposed are not on the ballot. And we've seen from polling that they've really consolidated the GOP base behind them. So, you know, any talk of GOP civil war has at least subsided for now in 2022, who knows about 2024. But at the same time, if you're Brian Kemp, if you're Brad Raffensperger, anything like that, where you can help galvanize, mobilize, energize Trump supporters to come back at the ballots, it's something they're welcome. There's a good reason why Brian Kemp hasn't said anything at all, really, not just about this raid, but anything at all about Donald Trump, because he doesn't want to do anything to antagonize the former president's supporters. But even Trump critics, even people who are you know, Republicans who are neutral on Trump, they're very, I guess I'd say, I mean, the text messages I was getting right after the raids were, were very optimistic, I guess is the best word. And then one former lawmaker, Melvin Everson, a former state representative, walked up to me at the luncheon this morning and said, that raid just guaranteed another term of Donald Trump. Former state Senator Josh McCoon said something very similar the night before. So you're hearing this new, I don't know if optimism is the right word, but this new sense of confidence that the Justice Department, the FBI's decision to search Mar-a-Lago basically halted whatever momentum swing Democrats were hoping to get by all this. Now, politics is a fast moving game. And by tomorrow, we can have a completely different outlook. But that's just a snapshot of how things seem right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the message is I withheld classified 
documents vote for me (laughs) i don't know where you go with that i understand the victimization i understand the grievance culture and i know how strong that is among the trump base and there is this very strong sense that this entire sort of last six years of investigations into donald trump have been politically motivated but there haven't been without some smoke i mean i think we need to know a lot more about what the FBI was doing and why they were doing it. We just don't know that yet. And we've heard a lot more from Trump's children than we have from the FBI itself. And so I think that as the details come out, that will be very, very important. And then I think a lot of this will look, could look very different in the rearview mirror. It could look a lot more beneficial for Trump if it really does end up being uh, just about why didn't you return all the papers you were supposed to to the National Archives. That seems to be a very unusual reason to raid a former president's compound. But if it's you have classified documents and their evidence in different trials, um, their evidence against you and other criminal matters, I think that's a totally different conversation. And so we just need to know more before I think voters are going to get a clear sense of what it means in terms of who they'll be evaluating. But I do think it gets Donald Trump closer to running because you can just feel he just sort of just like sparks light off of him when all the attention is, is on him. And I think that's just what fuels him and his uh, daily existence. <laughs> and um, his supporters love it too. You know, it feeds right into their sort of worldview. And so I think that all of all of this is lining up to speed along a Trump announcement sooner rather than later. I'll give it three weeks, maybe four. Let's see. Yeah. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. We're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which I write really late at night, and Patricia wakes up really early to write. <laughs> really, really early. Patricia, while you're on vacation, I missed your, like, 4 a.m. <laughs> Slack messages about, you know, I think, did you mean this in your item or did you mean that? <laughs> I know that you must have been, have been incredibly bored at 3.30 a.m. when I was gone. <laughs> Do you know what I've done this week, though? I have started 
working out before the jolt. So that's like my new... So you're waking up at two? Yeah. Well, not quite two, but I'm like, I've got to like, I used to be a morning exerciser and then I started doing the jolt and then that stopped. So I'm like, I need to just find some way, like 20 minutes before. So that's my goal. Well, I'll give you an update as the... uh as the year goes on. <laughs> Just stick with your, uh, stick with your regimen. Exactly. <laughs> well, when I see those messages you know, around six, six thirty, I try to answer them as quickly as possible. Thank you. Um, well, we like to think, uh, our work is worth it, uh, late at night and early in the morning for you, because we like to think that the Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join our community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia, for our next story, we'll talk about something that we first broke in the jolt and then expanded in a, a big print product, big longer story. But that was this tide of Democratic officials and governors in other states aiming to help Stacey Abrams by saying, hey, Music Midtown was just canceled. Well, we'll gladly take it in our state. Or, hey, anti-abortion laws are uh, <laughs> are uh, boring your employees. Well, move to our state where we protect abortion rights. We heard from four Democratic governors in the last few weeks, including three last week alone. But we've heard from the New Jersey governor, California governor, both urging Georgia corporations to set up their stakes and move out to their states uh, where they have abortion rights protections. And we also heard from the governors of Nevada and North Carolina saying, hey, Music Midtown, if you guys left because of Georgia's pro-gun policies, come on over to our state where we have less permissive gun laws, at least when it comes to major events. This is something that Stacey Abrams has used as part of a broader argument that Republican policies are dangerous to Georgia's economy. And we heard her make this argument in a very stinging way in a 30-second ad about Music Midtown that just aired this past week. One of Atlanta's biggest music festivals, Music Midtown, is canceled. 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 This is all coming after state gun legislation. Governor Kemp signed a bill eliminating the state's gun permit requirements. A major blow to the city's economy. The festival brings in around $50 million. A great loss for the community. When they cancel it, it trickles down. We asked Kemp, any regrets about Music Midtown leaving in response to a gun law? You would have to talk to them. This could now impact future events could put all of those in jeopardy as well. Ooh. Well, Patricia, as you heard, that was a montage of news coverage about Music Midtown's decision. We should note that Music Midtown, they issued a formal statement that didn't really say anything, leaving a vacuum for reporters to fill by talking to officials with direct knowledge of what happened. And essentially, the word we got from multiple officials with direct knowledge of why Music Midtown canceled their events was it was because of legal fallout involving a 2014 gun expansion that essentially makes it harder for events with short-term leases like Music Midtown to ban guns from public property like Piedmont Park, where the event would have been staged. So a lot of fallout, a lot, of, a lot to go through, but Stacey Abrams is using this as part of a broader argument that in a way weaves together the three biggest issues that every single poll shows is most resonant with voters, the economy, guns, and abortion. And she's weaving all three of those issues together to try to energize and mobilize her supporters in a very, very tough economic climate that is really hard for Democrats and in an environment where she is running behind 
Governor Kemp and is openly acknowledging she's the underdog. Yes. And, you know, to me, the legal exposure, the legal concerns for Music Midtown are what are most interesting because that is what you could see being transferable in other situations. I think generally, all things being equal, the reality is companies are going to go where the tax laws are better, not where the gun laws are better. We've seen Google opened a huge, massive facility in Atlanta. Microsoft is coming to Atlanta. You know, we've seen major corporate expansions even since the abortion law was passed, even since our gun laws have been quite permissive and heading in this direction. So that doesn't seem to be impacting corporate owners. But when you start to see individual performers, when you start to hear from companies and their own employees don't want to relocate to a state like Georgia, I think that could create a critical mass. Also, if there are legal concerns um, for hosts of events, you know, it's not like it's different from the MLB when it pulled out the all-star game that was sort of perceived to be uh, something that was important to their employees, but you didn't hear a question about the legal exposure of MLB in that situation. If there's legal exposure in some capacity for events here in the state or even for companies that relocate here in the state, I don't know exactly what that like, but it tends, you really do see companies making decisions based on just cold, hard realities like that. And so Music Midtown, I know, did not want to cancel this event so close to the date. It's it's a huge sort of tentpole of the music industry here in the city. Um, I do have some friends who are glad their teenage daughters weren't going to Music Midtown, <laughs> <laughs> but almost everybody else was really really disappointed. Um, It's just a huge blow, I think, to the music industry here and to the event industry here. And so you have to be very concerned about what other events are going to follow suit. This is a really narrow situation um, because it's in a public park, but hosted by a private group. That was Mm -hmm. the legal question, but it was the performers also who told that group, I don't feel comfortable going out there and performing in a big venue where there could be guns on anybody. I don't feel good about that. That. that's a problem. I mean, that is a yeah. real problem in a state trying to woo big events, football games, basketball games, you know, giant concerts. That's a problem. And so I think that's something to be very aware of. And I think it's something very smart for Abrams to raise as a leadership issue. Listen, we're trying to bring all these new people to the state. New people are concerned. They don't like what's happening here. People from outside the state. It, it doesn't pull well in the state. It pulls even worse outside of the state. And so I think for Abrams to bring that in, not just as a social issue, but a leadership issue and an economic issue, I think it's a smart way to take advantage of that because I think it is also very real. So I'm sitting here in downtown Atlanta after coming back from Macon from the Georgia Chambers luncheon. Stacey Abrams is going to deliver her major economic address later tonight at a brewery right around the corner from where I'm at. I'm sure she's going to bring this up. I'm sure she's going to bring up a broader economic argument. I'm sure she's going to talk about other ways to raise revenue, to do, to pull off some of her plans without raising taxes. So I suspect that could involve legalizing gambling and, and taking other steps that, that she has not yet formally embraced on the campaign trail. We'll see. We'll have a lot more coverage of all that. But in general, look, there's another reason she's making these very urgent appeals. And yeah, she has the money to do that. She can roll out another ad every day with all the money she's got in the bank. But we should also make sure our listeners know that one of the main reasons she's doing this is because she's behind. There's no doubt about it. Her internal polls show she's behind. All the public polls show she's behind, except for a few outliers here and there. 
the governor's polls show he's comfortably ahead. We're not talking double digits, but we're talking a solid single digit lead. And that is becoming a bigger concern every single day for Democrats. When you see Raphael Warnock either tied or running ahead of Herschel Walker uh, on one side of the ballot, but Stacey Abrams behind Governor Kemp on the other side of the ballot, you start to worry that independents aren't going to break your way, that you know, so-called swing voters, the undecided aren't breaking your way. And so that's why just about every single week, if not every other day, there's this new urgent message. And the problem for the Abrams campaign is this can seem scattershot, right? One day it's Music Midtown, the next day it's guns or abortion, uh, the next day it's a new housing policy, the next day it's criminal justice, the next day it's back to the economy. Whereas Governor Kemp, if there's two main messages, one is economy, 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 and, and it's the Abrams-Biden agenda that's driving high gas prices. And the other issue that he is really capitalizing on is public safety. There is a reason why Stacey Abrams has now filmed two ads that respond to Governor Kemp's attacks on her public safety agenda. And that's because it's probably working. It's probably raising doubts in the minds of those swing voters, of those independent voters, that there are reasons to be concerned about her public safety agenda. Even though she said that she wants to raise salaries for certain law enforcement officials and she does not want to defund the police, they've got that golden clip of her on CNN saying that she did want to shift resources away from police pay in 2020. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this very, very almost nonstop, right? Almost nonstop strategy of rolling out new policy items and new agenda items and attacking Kemp because as they've acknowledged themselves, they're the underdogs in this race and they're playing from behind. Yeah, it feels like they are working to build a coalition of almost single issue voters of the people who are gonna, who are very activated by the gun issue, very activated by the abortion issue, very activated on housing affordability, and then sort of building that together and overlaying it with an economic message to say, and the economy will still be strong. I don't know how that's working. It does feel a little bit scattershot. Uh, the reality is, is that I think Stacey Abrams is very well known in the state already. Governor Kemp is very well known in the state already. This is a rematch, and it is feeling like a similar dynamic between these two, but without that kind of big issue of Kemp being the Secretary of State at the time of the last election between the two of them. And so and without Abrams Trump really ballot, does need... Right? And without yeah, Trump, and, Trump and, and that's extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so it, it creates a situation where, because these two candidates are so well-known, Abrams is going to have to do something different to get a different result. And so it feels like they're trying to do a lot of different things. There's a chance that one of these different things will really catch on. There's also a chance that Abrams ground game, which is just is known to be sort of rivaled by none, will really deliver all of those voters to the polls. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have people polling extremely well. And if they don't have the ground game to back that up, if they don't have the motivated voters to get out there and actually cast their votes, it really doesn't matter how you're doing in the polls. And so she does have a ground game, I think that they feel like they can really rely on to get their most loyal supporters out there. But it is again, it's a rematch, and she needs to do something different for a different result. I think one reason that Kemp is focusing on the economy and crime, the economy, first of all, if you look at the AJC's most recent polling, the economy was by 
far the number one issue and nothing else was even close. It was so hugely important to voters. And that is a campaign and a governor that's responding to that. The economy has also always been his wheelhouse as a GOP governor. Mm -hmm. I think he feels like that's where he's been strongest. So he's going to dig into that. And if you go back to the Atlanta mayor's race, when Andre Dickens was elected, it it feels like it was 100 million years ago, (laughs) but it was less than a year ago. Um, The issue of crime and public safety, that was the number one issue in the mayor's race without anything even close. And so those are the realities of Georgia voters right now. I do think the abortion issue is this kind of wild card that is shuffling the issue set in some voters' minds, but not all voters' minds. And um, I think that Abrams' campaign is just working to adjust around that situation as well. Um, I'll also be at that. I'll see you at the economic speech tonight, Greg. Um, So I'll be there as well. I'll be interested to see how she's framing this, how she is framing Kemp. I know that she is working to really continue to brand him as an extremist, even though he has managed to get himself on the other side of Donald Trump in the mind of some uh, Georgia voters. And, you know, it's just a very unique challenge. She's the only Democrat who's got this kind of a candidate right now, a statewide elected official, a popular GOP governor who is also managed to distance himself from Donald Trump. That could be a very successful formula for Kemp, and it's creating a challenge for any Democratic candidate. But if anybody I think could do it, it's Abrams who has that strong ground game. But we'll have to see. We've got a lot of time left here. Yeah, Kemp's approval rating in the AJC poll is 54%. So that's a challenge. She's got to try to brand someone who a majority of Georgia voters support as an extremist. And that sort of encapsulates it. And you can learn a lot about the state of campaigns from what the other guy is doing. I always go back to 2020 when there was a lot of Democrats whispering about, oh, well, Senator Warnock, I mean, well, Raphael Warnock, will he end up in the runoff? Will he be the Democrat, the candidate Democrats consolidate around? And I never had a doubt. (laughs) And one of the reasons I didn't is because I never saw Warnock's campaign attack any of the other Democrats. Well, in this race, I'm learning a lot from what Governor Kemp's campaign is doing. I mean, I talk to people from all four campaigns every single day. But one of the things that I'm definitely noting is that they're not acting with this sort of the same sort of sense of urgency. Of course, they're not acting complacently either, but they're not rushing out their own policies, their own proposals, their own responses every time Stacey Abrams does something because they know that the dynamic seems to be working in their favor. And it's only going to be this week where Governor Kemp issues his first policy initiatives. On Thursday, he is planning, as the AJC reported earlier this week, he is planning to roll out his own, another additional tax refund, probably around a billion dollars, as well as a homeowner rebate. So a way to dip back into the surplus to give more money back to to Georgians. Of course, this is also something Stacey Abrams, in terms of the billion-dollar tax refund, she's already announced her own plans for this. But Governor Kemp can say, hey, I've already done this, right? He already did this earlier this year. He signed legislation, bipartisan legislation, to to take a $1 billion refund and turn it into law. He wants to do another one of those now, and he's going to be plastering the airwaves and and, and soaking up the free media attention from this policy announcement. So, Patricia, I guess I'll see you in not so long, in a short time, (laughs) down the street at this cool brewery to hear from it. Before we go, though, we want to remind everyone, on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag. We've had some great ones. We've also had some hilarious prank calls. So keep both of those coming because (laughs) 24-7, this mailbox is staffed. And Shaney B., who's who's our mailbox coordinator, 
um, with a staff of at least a dozen under him, uh, loves hearing all the prank calls, especially. Right, Shaney B? It really is something special, and I appreciate them. <laughs> especially when my almost stepfather called once. Um, I think it was my brother acting as him, but anyway, it was a, I mean, amazing imitation of my mom's former boyfriend from about 15 years ago. So <laughs> that number, the Politically Georgia podcast hotline, you can call anytime. We'll play the question back and answer your question right here on the podcast. And we don't hear them before. So they're brand new to us, even if they're, eh, we like being surprised. That number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Let us hear from you. And you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and every Friday, or really whenever big news breaks. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. We'll be right back.